Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Cry Like a Boy, a Euro News original series and podcast that explores how the pressure to be a man can be harmful and how men can step up to help in achieving gender equality. Stay with us as we travel across the African continent to meet the men who defy centuries-old stereotypes. In the previous episodes, we explored the pressure on some Guinean men and boys to risk their lives on the Mediterranean migration route in order to climb up the social ladder and prove that they are real heroes of their families. Today we are joined by Sharon Ekambaram, a human rights activist based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and Julie Kleinman, author of the book Adventure Capital on West African Migrants in Paris, based in Bamako, Mali, to discuss the importance of social connections when you're trying to make a new country your home. I am Khopoto Budibe, and I am with you from Johannesburg. Hello to you. If you haven't heard the documentary episodes of our Guinean service, we invite you to do so by visiting our website at www.euronews.com. You will meet two Guinean men, Mamadou and Fana, who each embarked on a dangerous migration route they call the adventure from Africa to Europe with one crucial difference. Mamadou failed and Fana made it to France. Each had to deal with stigma and overcome many obstacles, but they both became a hero in their adventure. Before starting our conversation, let me introduce my guests. Sharon Ekambaram is the head of the Refugee and Migrant Rights Program at the Lawyers for Human Rights in South Africa. The program makes sure that asylum seekers and refugees have easily available legal advice. Sharon is also working to combat xenophobia through engagement and education at community level. Julie Kleinman is an urban anthropologist at Fordham University in New York City. Her research is centered around France and Francophone West Africa. Julie's book, Adventure Capital, Migration and the Making of an African Hub in Paris, examines how West African migrants adapt to their new homes and find ways to reach social and economic success as state institutions fail to help them. Okay, let's start with you, Sharon. Sharon, last year here, here in Johannesburg, as South Africa was dealing with the economic downturn caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, we yet again witnessed calls for migrants to be deported and the government to take action against crimes allegedly committed by people born outside of South Africa, specifically migrants of African origin and to some extent Asians. These incidents keep flaring up now and again. Why do you think such xenophobic outbreaks happen? Your litany of events of uh, outbreaks of xenophobia, I would say, happens 
on an ongoing basis. We saw violence in 2016, in 2015. I think there's no simple answer. I think the first point to underscore in what you've just said is that it is predominantly targeting Black African brothers and sisters from the continent coming to our country. I think the second point I want to make very broadly is that this unfortunately is in keeping with a global trend of scapegoating of migrants, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in America, whether it's in Australia. And unfortunately, South Africa has followed in exactly the same uh, trend of, um, you know, forms of xenophobia, Islamophobia, of othering, basically to detract from the failures of states in policy um, implementation. And I think the crisis in our country is that we continue to be one of the most unequal societies in the world. And that compounds when when migrants are blamed for taking the jobs, for all the myths that are, are spread by particularly politicians, this unfortunately fuels the kind of uh, xenophobia that you've described to us now. Sharon, you have just said that the xenophobia that actually plays out uh, points to the failures of states to actually handle the situation. Is there anything we can do about this? Very simplistically, we do need to debunk those myths. We don't have floods of migrants coming into our country. According to Stats SA's most recent figures, there's been a, a drastic drop in the number of international migrants coming into our country. And I want to just go back to that point of international migrants. So we have about 3 million migrants in South Africa. We have about 180,000 asylum seekers, people waiting for over 10 to 15 years to have their claim for refugee protection granted by our asylum system. And we have about 90,000 refugees recognized. Now that figure of 90,000 has been the same for the last six to 10 years. We have not recognized any more refugees. I think the first point to make then is our asylum system is in crisis. The second related problem, and these are the facts that need to be mentioned when we have South Africans bemoaning the number of foreign nationals in our country and all the problems, whether it's our failing public health system, whether it's our education system, whether it's the unemployment crisis in our country, we blame the foreign nationals. But what we also are not doing, uh, and I think this is an important point, we have no proper disaggregated data on movement of people, whether this is internal movement of people coming from other provinces or whether it's people coming from across the borders coming into our country and what form that movement is. My experience and our experience of organizations like Lawyers for Human Rights, like Doctors Without Borders, is that a lot of the movement is circular. So people come to our country to buy goods, to contribute to our economy, and they want to go back home. But because we're not providing relevant documentation, we are not managing movement from the perspective of the rights in our constitution, respect for human dignity, respect for human rights. And there's constant infringements because as a country and as a government, we have criminalized movement of people. 
I see that a lot happening, actually, um, with uh, people coming from neighboring Zimbabwe who come in and out of the country to buy goods and services, uh, which actually helps the economy of the country. Now, let's just move on to another part of our conversation here. And uh, this is where I will bring you in, Julie. Xenophobia affects all sectors of migrant communities, men, women, and children. But does it affect men and women differently? And how does it affect children? And what are the impacts, both in the short and long term? In terms of xenophobia, we have to think about where we're talking about it from. Uh, As Sharon was mentioning, it's a problem that exists across the world. And I think in all of these places, of course, the policy on migration will be driven by certain kinds of xenophobic narratives. And those narratives and the policies that they help support will have, in some cases, extremely deleterious effects for migrants. So this is clearly the case in the US right now in terms of the children who are being separated from their parents at the borders in great numbers. And because of the desperation of many of those migrants, Um, those children are being detained. So I think that is in part one of the most dramatic examples of how the xenophobic narratives that support migration policy can have an impact on children. In terms of the difference between how it affects men and women, one of the things that is clear, I think, from a lot of what um, the podcast has been looking at is that um, the way that men in West Africa seek to come of age is often through migration. Um, And that migration may be to Europe, it may be to uh, the US, but it's most frequently to other parts of Africa. And unfortunately, in many of those parts of Africa, South Africa, but also Congo and Angola, where many West African migrants migrate, there's also increasing uh, xenophobia and policies against migrants that seek to make their lives very difficult. And thus, their hope for what migration would achieve is frustrated and they are not able to become uh, men as they hope to and become seen as successful men in their communities because of the kinds of migration policies supported by xenophobia and the xenophobic treatment that they receive. In terms of how it affects women differently, I think in many ways, women are facing the similar problems to what men are facing in that they also seek to support their families, support struggling communities affected by drought in West Africa when they migrate to Europe or to elsewhere in Africa. Uh, And they often are working in care work positions uh, as nannies, as caretakers for elders uh, and other positions where they have very precarious employment. I think xenophobia has become a political currency. And because of that, women are forced to take very precarious employment, often with disadvantaged conditions, and they don't have access to the kinds of employment that they might hope for. Their risk for deportation is perhaps less than men's risk for deportation, simply because they're stopped less by the police. Um, However, they nonetheless face incredible difficulty in trying to get healthcare, access to benefits, access to basic rights, and oftentimes work in very unfavorable conditions, but in absolutely necessary positions of care work in European economies. Let's get Sharon in on this. I'll get back to you, Julie, later on. Sharon, what are your observations with regard to the same uh, question issue that I have raised? 
I think the point that's just been made with respect to policy is critical. We have often framed the way in which migration is managed in our country as a clear form of institutionalized xenophobia. We see the Department of Home Affairs, the manner in which the South African Police Services carries out its, its uh, uh, responsibilities, enforcing policy, and similarly, immigration officers um, uh, are basically, you know, working in a, in, in, in a very, um, well, breaking the law in many, many instances. Policy is not respected. And, you know, unfortunately, we actually see a very frightening similarity with some of the practices of the apartheid state, very similar to the Dompas and the way people are hounded to show their documentation to uh, confirm if their stay has been regularized through documentation. The reports have indicated that the conditions of detention are shocking. Um, and, and, and I think there's other related problems of access to basic rights like education, uh, access to hospitals, people are being denied because they, they don't have uh, proper documentation. The shocking thing is that the framing is still very much around race. You don't have this problem in Santon, which is still predominantly a white uh, part of our country. So, so I think those are the kinds of things that we need to be understanding in our response to the state in exposing its opportunism in using this issue of migration to deflect from, as I said, its failure to ensure that there's decent jobs. We've had a chronic crisis of employment for over a decade now, if not more. Systemic unemployment, 50% of our young people are unemployed, and yet we blame foreign nationals for this. Julie, if I can come back to you again. In your book, Adventure Capital, Migration and the Making of an African Hub in Paris, you explore how migrants from West Africa create links within their communities, but also with people in the host society where they get to. How important are the links that they create? Would you say that people become a resource? Absolutely. I think the links they're creating with people from the host society, with other migrants in the host society, uh, th those kinds of social network building are absolutely key to the way that they envision their potential success and the way that they try to get by under these very difficult conditions created by migration policy that's very restrictive. So by creating and widening their social networks, which they see as a key part of their journey of migration, they are able to create potential value for themselves. They are able to find jobs in some cases through these connections, jobs that they wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. They're able to learn about what are the techniques and skills that a migrant facing these difficult conditions need. By broadening their social networks, these become a huge resource for them, given the fact that in so many ways, the state has also failed migrants, just as it's failed its citizens, as Sharon was mentioning. Now, xenophobia is a global phenomenon, as we have been discussing throughout this conversation. Migrants are often seen as less smart or less strong or less capable. How do these attitudes affect migrant communities? If I can just stay with you for a moment here, Julie. These discourses, I think, affect them in two ways, primarily. One, the first way that it affects them is, is through the policy. I think that that's the most important way. It's through the fact that 
It's hard for them to get legal status, which is what they seek. Um, it's hard for them to get uh, decent conditions and rights, workers' rights on a job because they're worried about their legal status. It's also very difficult for them to leave. Many migrants would like to go home when there's no job available, and they're unable to go home because they don't have legal status and they worry that if they were to go home, they would not be able to come back. So because what's perhaps the unintended consequence of these migrant policies is that migrants would like to leave and they're unable to, and they end up staying longer and longer in these precarious positions in the host society. And of course, the other way that this sort of xenophobia, fear of migrants affects them um, is through the way that their communities are policed especially for men and especially for black men in, in Europe. Uh, black men, for example, it has been shown are were eight or nine times more likely to be stopped on a random identity control or check of one's papers um, than if you were a white. And this is extremely likely if you're young and black that you will be stopped by the police. And of course, if you're stopped by the police and you're undocumented, then you risk deportation, which is a very difficult experience for migrants. So that's another way in which uh, the stigmatization of migrants and specifically the racist xenophobia that targets Black people and especially Black men with policing leads to uh, very deleterious outcomes, also potentially violent encounters with the police. Indeed. Now, let's wrap up this conversation uh, with you, Sharon. Your thoughts on this particular question, what are they? Migration and movement of people has been part of humanity, the human race, since its origins. What we are witnessing, the phenomenon of xenophobia and othering, is coming in an era when there is predominant movement from the south to the north. So the, the racism that goes with that, the Islamophobia and all the other othering, the forms of othering. You know, in our country, we are seeing increasing trends of homophobia, where people are fleeing because of fear of persecution, because of their sexual orientation. The quality of decision making is so shocking. In, it's informed by homophobic attitudes. So, you know, I, I think that there must be a major movement to internationalize this notion of movement and of human beings that are the rise of very reactionary nationalistic tendencies is, is contributing to this. I think one way in which we can do it, for example, is to have a SADAC visa that regularizes movement in the region. We have it in West Africa. It is functioning. We, we don't see any negative consequences for that. In fact, there's a contribution to development. And my final point, which I think we have to put a lot of pressure on our government is to provide proper disaggregated data. Thank you so much for your time, Sharon and Julie. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cry Like a Boy. Thank you very much. This show has been produced with me, Hoboto Budibe, Makeme Bamba in Conakry, Guinea, Naira Davlashian, Marta Rodriguez Martinez, Lilo Montalto Monella, Mame Pea Diao in Lyon, France, Arwa Bakala in Dakar, Senegal. And special thanks go to Lori Martinez, Ecclesia Sala, and Studio Ochenta for helping us produce this podcast. The theme is by Gabriel Dalmaso. Our editor-in-chief is Yasir Khan. 
I would like to thank our guests, Sharon Akambaram and Julie Kleinman. For more information on Cry Like a Boy, a Euronews original service and podcast, go to euronews.com to find opinion pieces, videos, and articles on the topic. Follow us on Twitter, at Euronews is our Twitter handle, and we are at euronews.tv on Instagram. Also share with us your own stories of how you changed and challenged your view on what it means to be a man using the hashtag cry like a boy. If you are a French speaker, this podcast is also available in French. Dan La Tête de Homme is the name of the podcast series. Our podcast is also available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars and leave a comment. We love reading those. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.